part two chapter six of saunterings in and about london by max slesinger this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter six the bank appearance of the bank want of respect in the presence of public functionaries the public at the bank mysterious comforts english taste the wonders of machinery a strange library printing the notes hidden palaces the treasury bad sovereigns dr keif and why the english know nothing whatever of the affairs of germany we have already on a former occasion looked at two of the city temples the mansion house and the exchange we now return to the capitoline mart of the city to inspect the third of its temples the bank of england its outward appearance is mysterious half wall and half house it is neither the one nor the other and yet either at one and the same time for a wall there are too many niches blind windows columns and finery for a building it wants presence it is too low and it has not even window openings but it appears from the architect's plan that this strange facade is meant for a wall and having the artist's word for it we believe though see we do not and sit down satisfied standing free on all sides as the exchange the bank is divided from the latter by a thoroughfare called threadneedle street its western limit is prince's street in the north intervenes lothbury and in the south bartholomew lane between the bank and the neighbouring houses it forms a square and yet people say it demonstrates the squaring of the circle the grand problem of modern philosophy we enter the gate does not strike one as solemn and imposing as might be expected in a gate leading to the laboratory of a great wizard no druid's foot on the threshold no spectral bats such as abound in nursery tales of treasure-seeking no not even a couple of grenadiers who in our dear fatherland are a necessary appendage to every public building really everything looks worldly business-like and civil a red-coated porter answers our questions and tells us which way to go he is an elderly man and certainly not strong enough to arrest a mere lad of a communist if such a one should attempt to divide the property of the british nation a shocking idea that we cross a small courtyard and mount a few steps why shouldn't we and all of a sudden we are in a large saloon this saloon is an office it matters very little what particular office it is but it makes not a disagreeable impression as our german offices do where everything is official and officious oppressive and calculated to put people down on the contrary there's a vast deal of good society in this office at least a hundred officials and members of the public the officials have no official appearance whatever they are simple mortals and do their business and serve their customers as if they were mere shop-boys in a grocery shop there is in them not a trace of dignity not an atom of bureaucratic pride it is exactly as if to serve the public were the sole business of their lives and the public too was such a thing ever heard of in a public office men women and boys with their hats on walking arm in arm as if they were in the park 
they change money or bring it or fetch it as if they had looked into a neighbour's shop for the purpose some of them have no business at all to transact they actually talk to one another stand by the fire in the centre of the room and warm their backs the impertinent fellows why they have no respect whatever they forget that they are in a public office how dare you stand there you dolt how dare you scratch your head and hold your pipe in your hand i shouldn't wonder if it was lighted it would be like your impertinence get out as fast as you can if you don't the police will make you really not a trace of respect it's no wonder they say we are near doomsday footnote the readers of passages like the above will not be astonished to learn that dr slesinger's book has the honour of being prohibited in some of the best governed states of germany but more especially in austria End footnote. ranged in long rows along the walls the bank clerks sit writing casting up accounts weighing gold and paying it away over the counter in front of each is a bar of dark mahogany a little table a pair of scales and a small fraction of the public each waiting for his fare the business is well conducted and none of them are kept waiting for any length of time the saloon just by is more crowded we are in the middle of the year and the interest on the three per cents is being paid what crowding and sweeping to and fro at least fifty clerks are sitting in a circle in a high vaulted saloon well provided with a cupola and lanterns they do nothing whatever but pay and weigh and weigh and pay on all sides the rattling of gold as they push it with little brass shovels across the tables people elbowing and pushing in order to get a locus standi near the clerks the doors are continually opening and shutting what crowds of people there must be in this country who have their money in the three per cent consoles strange creatures may be seen in this place an old man with a wooden leg sits in a corner waiting and heaven knows how long he has been waiting already of course a wooden leg is rather an encumbrance than otherwise in a crowd the old man seems to be fully aware of the fact he looks at his large silver watch it is just twelve puts his hand to the pocket of his coat and pulls out a large parcel something wrapped up in a stale copy of the herald what can the parcel contain sandwiches he spreads them out and begins to eat he likes them too he takes his ease and makes himself perfectly at home i dare say it is not the first time he has waited for his dividends that young lady on our left is getting impatient she has made several attempts to fight her way to one of the clerks she tried to push in first on the right and then on the left but all in vain john bull is by no means gallant in business or at the theatre or in the streets he pushes and kicks and elbows in all directions poor pretty young lady you'll have a long time to wait it's no use standing on your toes and looking over people's shoulders you'd better come again to-morrow the little boy down there gets much better on a pretty fair-haired fellow that with a little basket in his hand perhaps he is the son of a widow who cannot come herself to get her small allowance the boy looks as if about to cry for he is on all sides surrounded by tall men 
but one of them seizes him lifts him up and presents him to one of the clerks pray pay this little creditor of the public he'll be pressed to death in the crowd and they all laugh and everybody makes room for the boy for it ought to be said to john bull's credit he is kind and gentle with children at all times well done my little fellow now be careful that they don't rob you of your money on the way how can they ever think of sending such a baby for their dividends in this wing of the house office follows after office they are all on the ground floor and receive their light through the ceiling they are all constructed in a grand style and many of them are fit for a king's banqueting room in them money is exchanged for notes and notes for money the interest on the public debt is paid the names of the creditors are booked and transferred it is here that the banking business is carried on in its relation with the bulk of the public these offices are consequently open to every one they are the central hall of the english money market the great exchange office of london every englishman is here sentinel and constable for every englishman has or at least he wishes to have some share in the bank but those who would enter the more secret recesses of the sanctuary must have an order from one of the bank directors we are fortunate enough to have such an order which we show to one of the servants he takes us shows us into a little room and asks us to wait a few moments the room in which we are is a waiting room there are many such in the house a round table a couple of chairs and well, and nothing else that's all the furniture really nothing else and yet the room is so snug and comfortable it is altogether mysterious how the english manage to give their rooms an air of comfort which with us is too frequently wanting even in the houses of wealthy persons who furnish as the phrase goes regardless of expense every german who comes to england must be struck with the fact whether the apartments he hires be splendid or humble no matter he is at once alive to the influence of this charmed something and he will sadly miss it when he returns to germany yes it must be the charm must be in the carpets and the fireplace surely witchery does not enter into the household arrangements of sober and orthodox englishmen it's a pity they did not make us wait a little longer the room was so comfortable another servant has brought our order back and told us that he is to be our guide passing through open yards and covered passages we come to a clean and well-paved hall in which the steam-engine of the house lives large cylinders powerful wheels rods shining as silver the balls of the whirling governor heavy as four-and-twenty pounders and the space under the boiler a hell en miniature everything powerful and gigantic and yet clean harmonious and tasteful yes tasteful is the word the english are frequently and in many instances justly taunted with their want of taste they have an awkward manner of wearing their clothes they are bad hands at designing and manufacturing those charming nippers for which the french are so famous their grand dinners and festivals their fancy patterns and articles of luxury their fashions and social habits are frequently at war with the laws of refined taste but 
there are also matters in which in point of taste they are superior to all other nations such for instance in the cultivation of the soil the manufacture of iron and leather etc etc give a french german spanish or belgian artisan a piece of iron and ask him to make a screw for a steam engine give such a piece of iron to an englishman with the same request the odds are a thousand to one that the englishman's screw will be more neat useful and handsome than the screw produced by the artisans of the other nations the englishman gives his iron and steel goods a sort of characteristic expression a sort of solid beauty which cannot fail at once to strike every beholder the germans saw thus much in the great exhibition and they may see it in every english house if they will but take the trouble of examining the commonest kitchen utensils or the tongs shovel and poker in the most ordinary english parlour they are all massive solid weighty and tasteful it's a splendid sight this steam engine at the bank it is complete and in keeping in all its details it is the mind which moves all the wheels and machines in the house its power is exerted in the furthest parts of the establishment it moves a thousand wheels and rollers and rods it stands all lonely in its case working on and on without control or assistance from man with us too the steam engines have emancipated themselves and do not want the support of their masters but the furnace is still a mere infant and wants stokers to put its food into its mouth but here the furnace too is independent it procures its victuals and feeds itself according to its wants the large round grate is movable it turns in a circle on its horizontal plane and pushes each point of its circumference at regular intervals under an opening from which the coals fall down upon it the keeper of the engine has nothing whatever to do but to fill the coal box and light the fire in the morning steam is generated it enters the cylinder moves the pistons and the wheels and the grate commences its rotary movement from that moment forward the engine works on without assistance as we proceed we shall be able to judge of the multiplied usefulness of this remarkable engine we have followed our guide up a narrow flight of stone steps and are now in rooms which form a striking contrast to the saloons which we examined in the first instance they are dark and dusky workshops in which the materials for the use of the bank are being prepared here for instance is a man in a small room preparing the steel plates on which the notes are to be engraved his is a difficult task even though the engine moves the sharp hard wedge which scrapes and polishes the plates it produces a shrill screaming noise one which it is by no means agreeable to listen to for any length of time and besides the labour is most wearisome and monotonous but it is one of the dark sides of this age of machinery perhaps it is the darkest that the sameness of his mechanical labour tends to stupefy the workman that he ceases being an artisan or artist and comes to be a mere help to his machine which requires no talent or abilities in its servant but merely exactitude and promptness all he has to do is to put the plate or the spindle on the exact spot where the machine can seize handle it and finish it another room is devoted to the preparation of printer's ink for the printing of the notes 
a quantity of black matter is being ground a simple operation this even dogs might be trained to perform it and give satisfaction but here too the machine does the work and does it too with astonishing accuracy all the workman has to do is to put the black mixture between the rollers they take it crush it grind it and drop it ready for use if a single grain of sand be found in the mixture the machine has neglected its duty that's all but you won't find a grain of sand even if you were to search for it in many tons of the ink the workman explains the process the ink says he must be passed between these two large rollers to be ground the rollers are of strong steel they are very hard and heavy but small particles of sand or stone would soon take away their polish that's what this side cutting is for look here i hold the point of my knife exactly at the point where the rollers touch one another did you see how at the slightest touch they separated this happens whenever any hard body however small finds its way between them they don't take it but drop it and in this manner they keep their polish it is marvellous this machine is most simple and yet we could stand for hours to see it work what is a sensitive plant to these heavy steel rollers which are so sensitive that they recede at the touch even of a grain of sand and it is all done by means of the cutting and the weight it is no use attempting to describe these things without a diagram and even that is unsatisfactory to those who never saw the machine in motion but we revoke the pert remark we made just now a dog cannot be trained to do this work even the labor of man could not supply the labor of this machine enough for man that he made it through the various workrooms each of them devoted to some part of the manufactory of notes we come to the large workshops of the printers and binders in either of them steam is at work and so are human beings the bank of england which in the first year of its existence wanted only one ledger requires now at least three hundred ledgers to register its accounts they are all lined paged and bound in the house it is one of the most interesting features of the bank that all its requirements with the sole exception of the paper are manufactured on the premises exactly as in the stone-paved hall of the lower story where we watched the great central steam-engine feeding itself so we find in other rooms large machine monsters moving up and down and to and fro rattling hissing and thumping and frequently not doing anything that we can see although our guide tells us that the results of their labors will become apparent to us in other parts of the building and they stand moreover alone completely left to themselves in the rooms in which they work in the corridors leading to those rooms not a human creature is to be seen not a human step to be heard nor is there a trace of human influence that we are aware of and then this measured rotation of the large wheels the busy movement of the straps the never-tiring restlessness of the pistons which seem to move faster the longer we look at them there is something grand in these rooms void of the presence of man where the mind of man invisibly hovers over the world of machines as the spirit of god over the face of the waters in the hour of creation it is grand but it is also awful 
we feel quite relieved when we get down into the paved courtyard where a living two-legged labourer walks by and yet neither the place nor the man is very agreeable to look at the yard has a neglected appearance and the iron shutters which cover the place where the windows are supposed to be make it still more gloomy that is the library of the bank remarks our guide we are not likely to be astonished by anything we just saw workshops without men why should there not be a library without books let us have patience and wait perhaps some very clever machine will open the iron shutter from the inside thrust forth its arm and hand us a catalogue no well for a wonder our guide who is very polite though by no means over communicative opens a small door and motions us to enter a low narrow vaulted passage which reminds us of the casemates or bomb-proof galleries of fortresses a few rays of light straggling in through some grating somewhere at the end of the passage a heavy iron door which opens into a small windowless room lighted up by the most consumptive-looking gas-jet imaginable our eyes are quite unused to the light but gradually as we get accustomed to it we can see the objects around us we stand in front of a railing and behind it stands a little man in a black dress coat and with a white cravat this gentleman is the librarian of the bank says our guide still no trace of books the man in the black dress coat opens a door in the railing bids us enter and shows us an enormous number of parcels and bundles of notes ranged along the walls up to the very ceiling they call this the library of the bank but in truth it is its lumber room it is an asylum for the notes which have been paid in at the bank they are valueless for the bank never issues the same note twice they are kept and locked up in the library i forget how many years in order to be produced in the case of a theft or forgery or any other matter of the kind afterwards they are burnt every now and then clerks come in with fresh bundles a few minutes ago these small papers were worth heaven knows how much money they are now mere waste paper they have had their day many a note leads a long and honourable life goes to the continent to india or port adelaide and returns to the bank much the worse for wear after all its journeys other notes have scarcely a day's roving license in the world to-day they are issued and to-morrow they are paid in it's accident or fate or providence saying which the librarian makes his bow turns round and returns to his desk we leave the library the way is frequently very short from the old bookshop where good books and bad books are alike given up to dust and moths to the printing office from whence they are launched forth into the world thus it is in the bank we have scarcely left the library and we are already in the department where they print the notes the printing from the place is simple enough the wonders of the machinery consist chiefly in the spontaneous advance of the numbers each note has its own number and a double set too and in the control which the machine exercises over the workman there is no inspector to watch the printer the machine which he compels to print compels him to be honest 
the machine registers the exact numbers that are being printed and registers them too in a distant part of the establishment that the machine can do this with astonishing accuracy that it masters the intricacies of our system of numbers and that it produces the numbers at the same moment in different places is a triumph of human invention which almost startles us it is also the result of the various systems of wheels which we saw working all alone in other parts of the building a great deal more might be said of the astonishing results of this most perfect system of machinery but since description is out of the question we should only reproduce our own impression still we must tell the fairer portion of our readers that at the bank even the washing is done by machinery and that the establishment manages to get on without female labor the dirty linen of the bank that is to say the cloths which are used in the printing process are sent to the wash-house where they are compelled to perform a pilgrimage through a number of large pails full of hot and cold water they are then washed by wheels then dragged into hot water and next into cold water wrung out and hung up in a drying-room and all by steam all by machinery no busy housewife no able-tongued laundresses no disturbance of the house and no washing days there is no saying how shocking a want of respect of the whole female sex is implied by this process but then the poor mechanics are quite as badly treated you must put up with it madam the bank can and will do without you our guide leads the way to other regions we enter the reception and meeting-rooms of the governor and the directors charming open places with lawns and shrubberies and here and there a shady tree clean well-sanded paths it is quite evident that we have left the manufacturing districts and are in the midst of the parks and homesteads of old england and these buildings rising up from the lawns are palaces with columns large stone steps and carved ornaments their interior excels in splendour the wildest anticipations we might have formed saloons high and lofty as cathedrals splendid cupolas everywhere and an overwhelming profusion of panelling architectural ornaments rich carpets and furniture fit for a king's palace we would gladly remain here and see nothing else but our guide is determined on our admiring all the sights of the house we follow him to the guard-room where a detachment of soldiers from the tower enter every evening and pass the night to protect the bank in case of emergency we follow him to the bullion office a subterranean vault where they keep the gold and silver bars from australia california russia peru and mexico where they weigh them sell them and from whence they send them to the mint these vaults are very interesting to the admirers of precious metals but is this all no nothing of the kind our guide our real guide has reserved the most interesting part of the exhibition to the last he has taken us through several yards and passages he knocks at a large door which is opened from the inside two gentlemen in black dress coats and white cravats stand in a large room which receives its light through a lantern in the top in the centre of the room is a heavy bureau the walls are covered with iron lock-ups and safes this is the treasury of the bank where they keep the new notes and coins 
one of the gentlemen looks at our order and with that unpretending dignity which characterizes the english he turns round and opens some of the iron safes they are filled with bags containing five hundred or a thousand sovereigns each he takes some of them and puts them into our hands to convince us as though we ever doubted of the fact of the bags being filled with good sterling money the other gentlemen they are both dressed as if they were going to a levee takes a bunch of keys and opens a large closet filled with notes the most valuable and smallest bundle is again put into our hands you have there says he two thousand notes of one thousand pounds each two million pounds sterling surely an enormous sum to hold in one's hand an army in paper containing the power of much evil and much good especially since the paper is not mere paper and since at a few yards distance you may change it into red red gold as the poets say but as we are not in a position to perform that alchemistic process we return the notes to their keeper good-bye sir good morning gentlemen we have left the treasury without being either wiser or richer men of course because we were not allowed to carry off its contents we enter another large room with the neatest prettiest steam engine in it and with a variety of other small machines whose complicated wheels are kept in motion by the said engine the bulkiest object in the room is a large table literally covered with mountains of sovereigns a few officials with shovels in their hands are stirring the immense glittering mass it is here that they weigh the sovereigns whispers our guide we stand and watch the process ignorant as we are of the exact principles of the machines we are altogether startled by their fabulous activity besides the mysterious system of wheels within wheels each of these marvels displays an open square box and in this box slanting in an angle of thirty degrees two segments of cylinders with the open part turned upwards a roll of sovereigns placed into one of these tubes passes slowly down and one gold piece after the other drops into a large flat box on the floor all the clerks have to do is to fill the tubes the sovereigns slide down but just at the lower end of the tube the miracle is accomplished whenever a sovereign of less than full weight touches that ticklish point a small brass plate jumps up from some hidden corner and pushes the defaulter into the left-hand compartment of the box while all the good pieces go to the right this little brass plate hiding where it does and popping out at intervals to note a bad sovereign is an impertinent ironical malicious thing there is an air of republicanism about it as to the sharpness of its criticism we actually do not believe that any republican would attempt to compete with it for who would estimate the virtues of his fellow-men by grains especially in the law of crowned heads we cannot see enough of these active machines the small plates of brass show themselves pretty often as old and worn-out sovereigns glide down not one of them is allowed to pass and withal these small plates act with so much quiet promptitude and calm energy and altogether without noise or pretension one of the clerks is kind enough to explain the purpose of this process 
the bank selects the full-weighted sovereigns from the light ones because all the money we pay out must have its full weight and what do you do with the light ones we send them to the mint after we have taken the liberty of marking them shall i show you how we do it he takes a handful of the condemned ones and puts them into a box which has the appearance of a small barrel organ he turns a screw or touches a spring it is clearly impossible to note each movement of the man's hand and there is a sounding and rushing noise in the interior of the box and all the sovereigns fall out from a slit at the bottom but mercy on us how dreadfully disfigured they are cut through in the middle the victorias the williams the georges all cut through their necks in fact beheaded and that's what the english call marking a bad sovereign it makes us shudder we are positively afraid we can't stay one minute longer good morning sir good morning gentlemen what with our confusion and distress we quite forgot to thank our kind guide we are again in the street to our left is the exchange to our right the mansion-house and before us the iron duke on horseback and all around the furious rattling ceaseless crowd of vehicles the moving and pushing of the foot passengers women hunted over the crossings walking advertisements street sellers red post-office carts the dusky streets and the heavy leaden sky the city in all its working dress at home while we are sitting at tea dr keif wastes much valuable eloquence in trying to convince sir john that the english can never get a proper understanding of german affairs first because it is hardly possible even for a german properly to understand them second because the english newspapers have none but english correspondents in germany who know just as little of that mysterious country as he dr keif knows of banking third because the english consider all other countries with exclusive reference to their own country and fourth because they fancy that reform can be brought about by peaceable public meetings even in countries where those who attend such meetings are at once arrested and locked up in fortresses or houses of correction fifth because social life in england is vastly different from social life in germany sixth because britons are too ignorant of the geography of germany and seventh because there are many who might understand german affairs and who have very good reasons for not wishing to understand them as we cannot follow the learned doctor through the whole length of his argument we leave him to fight his own battle with sir john and merely remark that an armistice was concluded at two o'clock in the morning after which the belligerent parties went into night quarters and with this satisfactory intelligence we close the chapter End of chapter 6